Welcome to the Dumpy Little Unicorn podcast. Today, I'm joined by the author of many novels, including The Gospel of Loki, Pocketful of Crows and The Blue Salt Road, and the starter of the hashtag storytime, Joanne Harris. Welcome, Joanne. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So uh, I understand that you were at the Folk Awards last night. How was that? It was great. I was uh, giving out a prize for the best traditional track and uh, quietly fangirling over Maddie Pryor, who I spotted in the bar. Oh, my word. It was good fun. Oh, good. So I have been a reader of yours for most of my adult life. And I think you've written in so many genres. Which mode of, which genre is your favourite one to write in and which one brings you the most joy? You know, it all brings me joy. And I'm not really entirely sure about this this division of genres. I've never been entirely convinced that I did write in different genres. I, I... I write in different areas, but about quite similar things. Yes. And so, yeah, to me, it's it's not as different as other people would think it. And, and I just tend to write the story that wants to be written. Brilliant. I've been a big fan of your um, story time hashtag. How did that <laughs> how did that come about? Doing that about five or six years ago when I joined Twitter, I wasn't entirely sure what to do with Twitter at first. And I wasn't sure I was going to like it. And and so I just thought, well, you know, what what if I what if I try to to use it to tell stories? And from time to time, a story would come to me, and they were very kind of particular stories. They were often based on things that I'd seen or political events that had happened, yeah. uh, things in the news. And and I just kind of realised that what I was doing was telling stories to an audience rather than writing them down. And I was writing them through tweets, and it felt a very immediate kind of medium, and I rather liked it. And and. I enjoyed the way some of those things emerged and 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 how they surprised me and how they they forced me to examine my style, which is not always terribly concise. And it taught me a lot. And I ended up writing a whole book of story time stories. Initially, most of them were written on Twitter. Oh, that's fantastic. And they have really kind of taken on a life of their own because there's now <laughs> the, sto- the story time band. Can ah, you tell yes. me a bit more about that, please? Well, while I'm waiting for my illustrator, the the wonderful but frustratingly slow Charles Vess, to finish his artwork for the book, I thought, well, what shall I do with these stories rather than have them kicking around on my hard drive? What if, having explored one way of taking narrative into a different direction on Twitter, what what if what if I started to do it in a different direction? So, because I've been in this band ever since I was kind of 16 and we've been writing songs together forever, yeah. I thought, well, what about making it into something performative as well as just storytelling online? What, what if we actually took it out in front of an audience? And so we we created this this show, which has been growing and growing for the last four years, where there is original music and songs and stories all kind of joined together. It's a bit difficult to explain what it is, but we've enjoyed it enormously, and, and so have the audiences, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. It's on my list to try and get to one of those gigs, but um, uh-huh. I, I haven't managed managed it yet, but I, it is, I'm planning on, on doing that at some point, if, if there are going to be any more. Oh yes, there'll be more. There'll be oh. more, and, and we will. Yeah, we, we've we've done. Uh, we've just done a CD, in fact, which is a longer piece than we usually do. We're like a forty-minute piece based on my novella, A Pocketful of Crows, and so yes. it's several songs and several pieces of instrumental music, kind of put together around a condensed version of that story. And to me, it's a kind of accompanying thing, an illustration to to the novel that goes with the the illustrations by Bonnie Hawkins, which are already 
lovely and which have been another way of taking narrative into a different direction. And I've really enjoyed doing that too. Well, that's funny because that was my next question. And I was going to say that I feel like this, like story time and your sort of child ballads do feel sort of very closely related. And I was wondering what has prompted you to explore them and is there going to be another one? Oh, yes, there will definitely be more. Um, I have finished the third one in that little sequence. It's not coming out next year because I've got a bit of a queue of books that are supposed to be coming out and, and Honeycomb, my collection of 100 Storytime stories, is coming out next year. And the next child ballad novella, which is called Orfea, is coming out the year after that. And Bonnie's already at work on the illustrations. And, I mean, to me, they're, they're all part of the same kind of fairy tale tradition. And the child ballads are very much our indigenous Grimm's fairy tales. And the story time stories are told in the same kind of way, although they're original stories. They are, they're quite dark and they're quite metaphorical. And they generally are structured around one quite simple idea that you can take away from them. And because they're short, you can do that even on Twitter. And I really like it. I like its conciseness and I like the fact that it feels a bit timeless and that you can play with with concepts like magic and have them fit into a world which people understand because everybody has a kind of intuitive understanding of folklore and fairy tale because we have so much of it and, and it's so much part of the the literary tradition. It is. And I think that I feel like that also really links in with um, like Chocolat, for instance, because uh, Vianne uses, I always think of it as like sympathetic magic. She uses um, the chocolate to scry and that feels to me like something that that's very much related. And I think Blackberry Wine was another one that I just felt had that um, that sort of theme sort of running through it. Yes, I quite like the idea of hedge magic and everyday magic rather than the kind of pyrotechnics of classic fantasy, um, which are fine as well. And I enjoy writing those things too. But I, I also quite like to write about a magic that coexists with ordinary everyday life, which is just a part of it, which is just a part of the way people perceive the world. This is this is something that, you know, saying that you have a queue of, of works to be published, you always seem to have multiple projects on the go. How, <laughs> yeah. How, 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 like how do you... punishment, really, with, with projects, because I always say, well, you know, I'm really going to concentrate now on the next thing because it's really important that I get down and write in the book. And then I'll go, oh, wow, uh, what about doing a musical about this? Or, or, hey, this would be a really interesting idea for something else. And I end up finding that I'm, I'm, I'm on another project as well, which is OK. I'm, I'm all right with being on multiple projects. But I do sometimes think that, you know, it would be much easier for me and for everybody in my life if I just did one thing at a time. Oh, yeah. So one of the things I was going to ask is how do you manage to keep it all straight? I, I guess things are at different stages all the time and that you probably aren't doing two first drafts at the same time. But uh, no, I was just wondering. How I do it. Um, you're right. Yes, absolutely. Um, what I tend to have is things at different stages of completion. So usually there's something which is a parallel project, which is usually in its infancy, which if I'm finishing something off and sometimes I need a bit of time to think, or, or perhaps there's one idea that needs to be locked into place and I can't think of it, then 
you know, I will I will go to another project and work on that for a bit and hope that the idea that I'm struggling with will come to me in time. Or sometimes they're so different that there is really absolutely no way that they can be confused with each other. Yes, because I guess you compartmentalise it and, and, and juggle and then not have two things at the, at the same stage. Yes, but well, you... they can be in different media because working on story time is very different to working on a novel because story time is essentially a, a collaborative thing and there's music attached and it's a different discipline. Yeah. Or at the moment I'm also doing... Um, a musical with Howard Goodall, an original musical about pre-Raphaelite women, which which is opening in London in November. And it was very different writing a libretto for Howard to, let's say, writing songs and lyrics and stories for the band. Again, a very different way of, of operating. And so it's a different part of, of the creative process. And so it's it's not something that's going to be confusing in that respect. No. Um, you're, you're preempting my questions here. It's amazing. Because I was <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I was going to ask was, um, I knew that you had written a musical with, with Howard Goodall. And I believe it's called The Stunners Opera. It is indeed, yes. And I did a bit of a look um, in the last week or so to see if I could get some tickets. And unfortunately, they're all sold out. Yeah. So I was wondering. It's only a week's performance. I'm I know that they've all sold out. But I am hoping that it will be able to go national at some point. I mean, the reason we decided to premiere it at Mountview and to, to hold it with, with students, very gifted students, yes. was that we wanted to put a small show together. And then we could get potential investors to come in and maybe take an interest. And then maybe we could raise some money to then take it into provincial theatres, build on it, workshop it for a year or two, and then perhaps bring it back into London on a slightly different scale. This is the plan anyway. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see Fantastic. if people like it. I have my fingers crossed because it sounds amazing and I'm already there for it. And um, I'm, I, I think I'm going to be stun as trash already. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Howard has done such an amazing job on the music. It's still, we are still working on it all the time because it's still changing all the time as these things do. But already some of the songs are just so catchy and so good. I'm just dying to share it with people. And, and at this point, I'm just kind of holding away from posting sound files because you know they may not bear any resemblance no. to what happens in six months time but it's sounding so good to me already oh, and the voices nice. are amazing excellent because I do know you're a huge musicals fan and I mean I am as <laughs> yeah. well so it's uh, it must be great to sort of like get the opportunity to to write one it is and particularly with somebody like Howard who is amazing to work with and who is tremendous fun and who has no side at all he's not in any way a kind of precious diva of a person even though he's massively talented and he's just so impressive in every way with what he's done um he, he's just genuinely happy to be working on this on the scale that it's at and i just feel tremendously privileged to be part of it really oh that that's fantastic i've i've watched a lot of his documentaries and he always comes across as so knowledgeable about music and the history mm -hmm. of it and it, it's just been sort of he, he does seem like a fascinating person so i'm very jealous that you get to work with with uh, somebody like that it's amazing um it is it has been pure pleasure up to now i have to say it hasn't felt like work at all maybe he's done most of the work <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So the next thing I'm going to ask you is, if somebody is new to your work, where would you recommend that they start? Well, that's a very tough question, because it really does depend 
there is no starting point. No. It depends what you want to expand. I mean, to me, I kind of write across a spectrum of things which, you know, which spans the outright fantasy, which is my rune books um, and everything that kind of goes under the name Joanne M. Harris kind of is a bit of a code for this is going to contain actual fantasy and flying snakes and maybe dragons and gods and, and stuff. And if you're comfortable with that, fine, you're okay starting there. And on the other side, there are my thrillers, things like Gentlemen and Players, Blue-Eyed Boy, Different Class, which are set very much in, in the real world, a sort of northern, an imaginary northern town called Morbury. Um, and then in the middle, there are books like Chocolat and The Strawberry Thief and Blackberry Wine and these things where there is a sort of everyday magic there and it's hinted at, but you can see it in a slightly more kind of psychological or metaphorical way if you are not comfortable talking and saying, about magic or you can just embrace the magic if you like it it's so this it's very much a choice of where you want to sit on that spectrum of perception whether you want to to be realistic if, if such a thing exists or if you are quite happy going into fantasy worlds i mean i'm quite happy doing all of those things i found that a lot of men and particularly older men came to me via gentlemen and players because they were not happy about what they thought were whimsical things and they wanted to read about proper meaty mudders and revenge yes. and, and cricket things like that that's i find that quite interesting it's i still can't quite believe that in this day and age you you do get sort of men who go oh i don't read books by women and oh. it's and i i can't quite believe it it i mean could you could hardly imagine somebody like me turning around and saying oh i don't read books by men it's no i don't think <laughs> That. I don't think women are, are, are brought up to think things like this. I think men are brought up to think things like this at some schools. Um, certainly at the one that I taught at, there was a strong emphasis on art by and there was a strong feeling that it was serious art, whereas art by women was, was more domestic. And it was all right if you liked that kind of thing, but, you know, it, it wasn't proper literature. And, and, you know, this was this wasn't a million years ago, but I still get it. I still get particularly men of a certain age and a certain kind of education and a certain professional status, shall we say. And they come to me and they go, oh, for years I had dismissed you as somebody who just wrote about whimsical things. But actually I read your book and they'll say different class or gentlemen players. Mm -hmm. and, and it was actually really good. And we'd like to know, um, have you written any more like that? And what they really mean is books set in the real world with a man as a hero. Because yeah. that to them is, is what a book ought to be. And I do feel a bit sorry for them. And, you know, I'm always getting these sort of slightly edgy fan letters from men going, um, yes, I read one of your books. I, I didn't mean to. It belonged to my wife. Uh, I was on a long journey. I was in prison. Uh, I was I was very ill. And I read your book. And actually, it wasn't half bad. And, and I think I'd like to read some more. And I think, oh, bless, you know, you don't have to apologize to me for liking a book by a girly, but it, it seems <laughs> odd that they, they feel the need to sort of make excuses for having liked a book. I don't think girls are brought up that way. No, I, I think I certainly uh, was brought up. I just read everything I could, uh, including yes, the cereal right. packet at breakfast. It was just absolutely <laughs> to read something. <laughs> I, I do think boys are less likely to read for pleasure than girls, and it's partly the way they're brought up. 
it's partly, um, you know, when I taught in a boys' school and I, I taught for nearly 15 years in one, um, it was striking how few boys wanted to read for pleasure and how many of their fathers kind of had put them off reading for pleasure by insisting that they read the classics when they weren't ready or mm-hmm. by somehow judging or mocking their choices or just by this idea that if you read books, then you're a bit of a girly because what you ought to be is out there on the rugby field, you know, yeah. properly bonding with your chums. Yeah, it, there, 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 I still think there's there's some of that that does that does persist because I think boys, I think if they don't get reading sort of young enough and they don't sort of, if it doesn't become, ha- you know, a habit when they're young, then it, it becomes a hard habit to to build again yes. um uh, and uh, yeah so it's it is it is a fascinating it is fascinating sort of the difference between between readers but it's like my, my partner um he 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 reads lots of, sort of articles but he doesn't read books but he will listen to books and he listens to many many audiobooks but I, uh, you know, I, I, it's not worth me buying him a book for Christmas because he will never crack its spine. <laughs> it's, no, it's very this is strange. quite true of a lot of uh, a lot of men I've found are quite okay with audiobooks, but they don't read physical books, and it, it's a striking thing. And the audiobook world is aware of this, and and there have been lots of people guessing about why it's the way it is, but it just is. Young men are more likely to enjoy audiobooks than actually physical books or ebooks which is fine i think as long as they're reading it's it's all good and and that's it i think the important thing is is it it's all reading so because again you sometimes get people who um judge people for using audiobooks which a is ableist in the extreme but B, it's, it's, it's still a book at the end of the day. It's just Of course it is. Format. And you get exactly the same from the content delivered in that way than you would if you'd read it as an ebook or as a paper book. It may be a slightly different experience, but it's not a worse experience or a lesser experience. I have lots of quite cross little interchanges with people on, on Twitter about this because I do think that there is a huge amount of snobbery in books and not just the content of books and the genre of books, but also the delivery system. There is still a school of thought that believes that if you you don't read the leather hardback and you do it in the right way, in the right place, with the right reading cloak and hat on, then somehow you're doing reading wrong and you're not getting the benefit. And it seems so exclusive and silly and so much likely to, to put people off reading, whereas what we ought to be doing is making reading as inclusive and as easy and as enjoyable for everybody. Absolutely. I completely agree. Now, I was going to say, you do have something to read for us this evening. Yeah, I'll read you. Given that we've been talking about story time, I will read you a story time story. Fabulous. It's it's actually a Christmas story. Um, we're not quite there yet, but we will be shortly, so I may as well. Very soon. <laughs> and this is this is a story from, from Honeycomb, which is coming out next year in the autumn, assuming Charles Vest gets his uh, his uh, his pictures done on time. And it's, it's a little story that I originally wrote on Twitter some years ago now. It's called The Old Woman and the Rocking Horse. Once there was a little girl who very much wanted a rocking horse, but only boys could play with such things. And so she would sit and play with her dolls and dream of wooden horses. Her brother had a hobby horse and a wooden lance to go with it, 
and sometimes she would stroke its mane, but she never rode it. Instead, she would watch her brother play, and when he left his toys outside, she would bring them in out of the rain and tidied them away for him. She always left the horse till last, lingering over its horsehair mane and running her hands down its wooden flanks. But she never dared ride it. Last, the girl grew up. She married a man who kept horses, but she was always so busy looking after the children that she never learned to ride. Instead, she would look out of the window at the horses in the fields and wonder what it would feel like to simply ride away. Her husband died. Her children grew up. The woman was left alone. Her children sold the horses and gave her the money for her old age. It's time to think of yourself, they said. But then they asked her to babysit for all her little grandchildren so that she had no more time than she'd had before. But in her dreams, the old woman rode horses of every colour with flowing manes and gleaming eyes and nostrils flaring in the wind. Time passed. Her grandchildren grew up. She grew too frail to be useful. People started to whisper that the old woman's wits were wandering, that she had entered a second childhood. Her children and grandchildren moved away, lived their lives, hoped for their inheritance. But the old woman had a secret. Every morning she would walk up the hill to the woodcarver's house and talk to him for an hour or more. Sometimes she gave him money. He did this every day for so long that finally all her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren became suspicious. What was the woodcarver making for her? Why was she paying him so much of her life's savings? So they followed her to the woodcarver's house and found out the old woman's secret. She had ordered the craftsman to make a magnificent rocking horse. It was the king of rocking horses, carved from a massive piece of oak with eyes that flashed green fire and a mane like sea foam. They, every child, believed himself to be the old woman's favourite. Family members who had not paid her a visit in years now became regular callers. Children who had once complained about coming to see the old woman now came with gifts of flowers. They listened to her anecdotes. They sat on her knee and smiled at her. They brought her cakes and honey and bottles of elderflower wine and wondered when she would tell them about the marvellous wooden horse. The old woman received them all with a twinkle in her eye, but she never mentioned the rocking horse. Christmas approached. The old woman's family eagerly awaited news of the gift. Surely now the old woman would reveal her long-kept secret. Meanwhile, the woodcarver worked to complete his work in time for the celebrations. And at last, on Christmas Eve, it was done. The old woman went out in the snow to the woodcarver's house to make the final payment. She looked at the horse. It was perfect. She stroked its mane with a trembling hand. To whom shall I deliver it? asked the woodcarver at last. No one, said the old woman and smiled. This rocking horse belongs to me. At that, she climbed up onto the horse's back, held the reins in both hands and began to ride. She rode so hard and so high 
that she rode right out of the woodcarver's house and out into the snowy night with the wind in her hair and the stars in her eyes. Some people say they've seen her galloping across the sky. That was wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that. So the next part of our conversation is um, I ask the questions that I ask everybody who comes on this podcast. So what have you been reading? What have I been reading? Recently, I have just finished The Institute by Stephen King. Okay. And I'm currently rereading a book called Pieces of Light um, by a science writer whose name I can't remember anymore, but which is about the brain and particularly about the nature of memory. And it's an absolutely fascinating book that I keep coming back to because, hey, a lot of the books that I go back to are actually nonfiction. And right. I get the best ideas from science books sometimes. And this particular book uh -huh. is, is about something that I'm really interested in, about how we perceive things that have happened and how our memory is absolutely not reliable and how much of it is is fictionalised. And it's the brain filling in details that it, that it hasn't remembered. Oh, yes. Uh, which I think you, you kind of explored in Blue Eyed Boy, which I, did. Uh, oh, I love. I know that's your Marmite book. Some people really hated that one and some really liked it. It's a, it was a very challenging book and it was a difficult thing to write and it was, I think, equally difficult to read in some ways. But, you know, sometimes I kind of feel that I need to, to explore things and take risks because otherwise, what is writing for? Exactly. Uh, I just find that just interesting, just sort of the whole unreliable narrator. It's always a fascinating thing to play with. Absolutely. And we are, we are all of us unreliable narrators. We're not aware of it. I mean, obviously, in the case of Blue Eyed Boy, that's not quite true. But mm -hmm. sometimes you can tell more of the truth from the lies that people tell than from when they're actually telling the truth. And, yes. and that, too, I think, is an interesting concept to to explore. Brilliant. So the next thing I'm going to ask is uh, what have you seen or what have you been watching? Well, I was just I was just watching El Camino um, last night on Netflix, right. which is the Breaking Bad movie mm -hmm. that's just. Um, and I have been watching The Crown, and I've just finished <gasps> season two, and I'm waiting with bated breath for season three next month. Um, I find that I mostly watch watch things online nowadays. There's not a lot on TV that I want to see. I particularly don't watch reality stuff because honestly, reality is just too terrifying. Um, this is true. So fiction, fiction is where it's at, although my husband spends all day watching the politics and has done for the last two and a half years. This is what happens when you marry a guy with a degree in politics who thinks <laughs> it's all the most amazing soap opera. It, but I, the further I get from that stuff, the better I feel. I know, it, it's absolutely terrifying. And it, yeah, I, the uncertainty is absolutely killing me. So yes, I also am, am sort of watching plenty of um plenty of, sort of dramas and because it's far more relaxing drama follows rules i'm not sure reality does follow rules no. anymore so uh drama is is generally better constructed and has a better plot so my next question is what have you heard what have i heard at the moment i'm going through a bit of a mountain goats phase um it's not all new but uh I, I do tend to go through phases of listening to bands or listening to, to sort of musicians 
in in big clumps. Um, so I, I got into the mountain goats through my daughter, and um, and I'm now kind of basically listening to everything that they've done. I really like them. Oh, excellent! They're not a new band, but uh, but they're they're given that most of my musical tastes are either in musical theatre or definitely in the seventies. Um, it, it's still it's still new to me. Okay, so I have a supplemental sort of question for you. What musicals have you been listening to of late? Actually, I've been going through I, I listen to all sorts of idiotic things um I've been listening to Wicked in Japanese Ooh. because the voices are amazing um yes. but there's a wonderful recording of, of Wicked in Japanese the voices are just sublime um I'm also going through a phase of obscure musicals um there is a really obscure musical called Paris which I, I love for all the wrong reasons um, yes it's um, it's it has the worst lyrics of any musical I've ever heard, but they're so bad that they're actually good. Um, and so I always, I, I like to listen to it when I want to be cheered up because, you know, some of those really stonking double rhymes are just, you know, just irresistible. And if you hear me kind of chuckling to myself on the train with my headphones in, that's probably what I'm listening to at the moment. Excellent. Yes, because I, I met you at Nine Worlds um, a few years ago. This was back when it was still at Heathrow. And I asked you that question yes. there and you, you recommended uh, Paris to me then. And I went out and I got the CD and I did listen to it. It's the most ridiculous thing, but I, I do love it. <laughs> and it's one of my favourites. And I'm a serial re-listener yes. to things. I, I do. I'm, I'm like that with books too. I like rereading books at least as much as I like um, new ones. And so I, there are certain things that I go back as as, uh, as comfort reads and, and comfort sounds. And Paris is one of my, my, my comfort ones. And so is The Fix, actually. I've got a wonderful recording of The Fix, which, um, which gets better because it's a political musical. Every time you listen to it, it gets better because at the moment it's reflecting the current state of the world. Sure. And also Hamilton. I haven't got tired of listening to Hamilton yet. It's it's wonderful. It was on a loop about a year ago when it came it came out on CD, and I've just I just keep going back to it, and I just can't believe how good it is. I I listened to it. I think almost on a loop for for almost two years. It was <laughs> it it just it wouldn't leave my brain, and you know every day there would be I don't know four bars of something that would just loop in my head. Um, yes, and what I when I was at a very stressful point in work where I was trying to write a timetable for a school, I basically listened to Hamilton on repeat, crying as I'm doing the timetable because I always cry in the <laughs> second act. Oh, and... Lord, it's, well, it's, it's wonderfully kind <laughs> of... Uh, it, it tugs at the emotions in all the right ways, but it's so nicely put together. And it's it's so interesting the way it's done um it's i'm it gives it gives me hope for the future of musical theater because i do think that we're in a bit of a a sort of Cameron mackintosh lloyd webber kind of loop in the west end and it's much much as i like those those musicals it would be nice to see something else other influences and and yes and yes hamilton definitely fits the bill um absolutely and it's i'm the same i do I, you know I love classic musicals but also I, I want I'm always looking for something that has a new a new score or an original score and absolutely um you know even if you've got like jukebox musicals it's like uh, uh <laughs> it's it's okay but you know I really yeah. 
I love to see a new musical that has a brand new score and brand new songs. And yes, I that, do. All, that makes me very excited. I, I do too. And I think that, you know, the West End is, is under the impression that jukebox musicals are better because people know the tunes already. But I think that actually there is a real appetite for something different. I'm hoping so anyway. I'm hoping that that we'll get that reaction from stunners. Um, oh, I hope but, so. You know, we'll, we'll just have to see. Oh, I've just, in, out of interest, have you seen six? No, but I keep meaning to um, because... I get the feeling that it's in the kind of ballpark in the sense that, like Stunners, it is looking at women's voices. Yes. Within a context which is mostly male-dominated and where people generally think, you you say pre-Raphaelite art and people think, okay, artists. Yes. In this case, there isn't a single man on stage, not from, not from the beginning to the end. It's all women. And all the male parts are actually played by women who just swing into the role and, and, and the men are interchangeable, which is visually quite amusing, I think, <laughs> and, and also socially a bit subversive. Um, and I like that. I like the fact that this, this is a, the story of women. And so the six, which is obviously doing something similar. Um, and then you've, you've also got the Jack the Ripper book, the five, um, which again is, is looking at women's stories, which, which I think is great. And I, I just love the fact that we're, we're at a point where this is this is happening and this is coming together. And it's one of the reasons that I, I'd quite like the musical to, to happen sooner rather than after four years of workshopping at the National. Sure, sure. But I can highly recommend you you seek out the six soundtrack because I, oh, think, I, you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. Mm. Um, well, I usually listen to the soundtracks before I go and see the show. I don't always get to see the show, but I usually have encyclopedic knowledge of the soundtracks. <laughs> I, I, I'm the same because I sometimes I find if I go and I don't know the music, it's it's almost too much for me to take in. So mm. I, I do like to sort of do a little bit of prep work and know what the music is before I go, because then at yes, least I've right. got a fighting chance of taking stuff in. Well, that's it, because there's often quite a lot going on. Yes. And um, if it's a good score and if, if, the, if it's properly integrated into what's going on, then even if it's not completely sung through, you can usually tell from the the CD exactly what's going on on stage. Yes. And then sometimes from time to time, like there's a bit in the Book of Mormon where you go, oh, yeah, that's what's happening. But otherwise, you know, th- th- there's not that much that's too surprising. No, no. And it's it that was it. That was one of the ones because a Book of Mormon, which I, I loved. But then when I, it went, I went to see it and I was like. Oh, okay. So that's how they do that, and it's, exactly. it's it's just how that makes sense. And it was completely I'd imagined it differently in my head. So, but it you know it worked and it was fine. It really did. But likewise, I, like I said, I've been listening to Hamilton, and I I went to see Hamilton, and it was so much better seeing it live. And because yeah. I knew it so well, it was like, but it was also like hearing the music for the first time because there was. There was more depth to the harmonies and everything once, yes. and it was just oh, incredible. But uh, well, yeah. this is the impression that I get too. I've not actually seen it. I, I bought tickets for my daughter and her husband for Christmas, but I haven't actually seen it yet because time. Yes. But I will at some point, hopefully soon, um, because I'd really like to. There's, there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that I've not seen that I would love to see. Okay, so my next question you once wrote a short story in it was in jigs and reels and it was about larping so it made oh, yes. me wonder whether you play uh-huh. games and I if do. so what games do you play 
Well, um, I did used to do a lot of LARPing, particularly when I was a teacher. I used to take groups of boys into the local woods and and arranged them to hit each other with rubber swords and, and I, I also did I also did some LARPing as a student in fact with um with the author um Juliet McKenna right okay who writes who writes terrific fantasy books and she was already at that time when we were students she was already world building um and was very very good at it mm-hmm. and and we would go to this place in Oxfordshire and we would spend a weekend there and we would have about you know we'd have kind of two daytime LARPs and two nighttime ones. And um, and so, yes, I was writing from the heart there. I do I do rather like like games. I don't have an actual games console, but sometimes I borrow my daughter's. Um, I've got quite into a game called The Last of Us, which is a zombie, oh, right, yes. a zombie game. Um, but I also quite like quiet, contemplative games. There's one on Steam called Fragments of Him, which... Um, I met the maker of that game a couple of years ago at um, a con in Spain, and and it's a really interesting game, which is about. Um, it's basically an exploration of grief. Oh right! It's oh, how right. to cope with grief, and it's it's basically it takes the last day of a young man who dies in a car crash, and you keep reliving this day from the point of view of all the people who knew him. So you can play the role of his girlfriend, his mother, the people at work. Um, and the more you play, the more you find out about him. Yes. And it's really beautiful. And yes, it was something that, it, because I'm relatively new to to complex games, um, it wasn't something that I'd assumed was, was possible to do. But actually, it was a very good, very thera- therapeutic exploration of, of how grief works. Which, which I thought was was interesting. I mean, this is something that that has come to me relatively late in life, a bit like graphic novels and comics, really. I, I, I kind of got into them about 10 years ago, and I, I hadn't been allowed to read them before because, you know, as a kid I wasn't yes. allowed to read them at home, and so I hadn't got into the habit. And, and again, I, I kind of got the habit from my daughter and borrowed her stuff and realised that there was a lot more there to be interested in than I'd, I'd previously seen. And so I, I got very interested in the idea of, of the things that you can do with games and with comics, which which are much less easy to do in the context of, let's say, a novel. Sure. I was, I was just going to say um, there was a game that uh, a friend of mine recommended uh, called Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. And oh, you, bas- yes. you basically walk around a deserted village um, in... It, it's it's sort of set in Shropshire, which is like my home county. So I'm like, yay, Shropshire. And um, everybody's disappeared and you wander around and then suddenly you find a little pocket of story and you build up this picture of what's happened. And I I love that game because I, I have no fine motor skills. I am rubbish. I'm, I, I sort of... <laughs> um, so if anything requires me to sort of like press three buttons at a time and jiggle something else, I am not very good at those. Or if you need me to be stealthy, I can't do that. But I will quite happily walk, bimble around sort of some countryside and stumble across stories. And there's a, there's a few games that are of that ilk, which I just love because you don't have to have any skills. Um, but you get to find out the story, and I, I do sort of love games that are sort of all about that that sort of story element and sort of allowing you to discover that. It's, it's always I find it that's a really relaxing thing to do. 
Absolutely. I think I'm I'm like this too. I mean, my motor skills are not great either, but I do enjoy the plot of of the games that I like. And and of course, I mean the the, the game that I play most often, I guess, is Zombies Run because um oh yes. I mean that counts as a game, I guess. It's 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 a game and also many other things. But it's it's definitely the thing that got me running. Um, mm-hmm. I think that as an idea to to get people into running, it's an absolutely genius idea. And Naomi Alderman, who who created it, is is just so inspired the way she thinks of these things. Yes, because absolutely. it's it's a very simple concept, but it just keeps on giving and it gets bigger and bigger. Okay, so final question from me, and then I do have a couple of questions from Twitter. Okay. So the- the first question is, or my question is, or my final question is, what needs more love? Oh, well, I think the planet. Yes. The planet, um, the educational system, the legal system, and also I think possibly the self, because there is so much of the hideousness going on around us, which is actually born of a fundamental self-loathing and feeling of lack of self-worth in so many people because I come from education I tend to see everything from an educator's point of view Mm -hmm. but I do think that actually teaching rather than just training how to get jobs how to pass tests that would help enormously just the whole business of educating for life and for society and for dealing with people in an empathic way and for understanding the consequences of our actions. Those things, those things certainly need the love at the moment. I, I completely And also the money. That. Yes. The money, because we, we can't have one without the other in that case. No, you, you can't. Uh, and I've, I've worked in school. I, I originally trained as a teacher, but uh, I, I was not very good at it and um, eventually sort of got back into education and worked as sort of somebody who looked after the statistics and everything else. And it's one of those things, especially if you're working in a school where it's that, you know, there's, they have less resources or it's a deprived area and there's not enough things to go around in the first place. Yeah. And, and you see what sort of teachers are trying to do, but then they also have to hit their targets and the targets they are... Do are a joke basically because they're ridiculous they're a Um, joke because the people who set them don't really know the first thing about what happens in a real school absolutely and there's this you know there's so many kids who are sort of alienated from mainstream schools yeah because what they're provided with is not fit for purpose essentially and nobody seems to accept that (laughs) No, it, it's it's yes. This is this is true, and and it, it's it is something that's been true for some time, and mm. and it's something that we really ought to look at because actually education is at the heart of everything, and if we could only get that right, then so many other things would follow. I I completely agree with that. Um, so I have a question from Run Along Womble from Twitter, and hi there, he, Womble. I remember he, you. he's he's book tempter in chief and he asks what is it about the norse gods compared to the other pantheons that has grabbed you the most well i think at the time because i was a child it was their fundamental accessibility the the instant accessibility of those very recognizable very colorful characters and to me also the fact that they were very funny there was a great deal of humor 
in Norse myth, which for some reason doesn't come out in the same way in Greek or Roman or Egyptian myth, partly because, you know, the, the Victorians got their paws on some mm -hmm. of the other god pantheons and, and kind of got rid of all the stuff that they felt wasn't dignified enough. Um, but also, I think perhaps because I come from the north, because I'm from Yorkshire, um, it seemed like it was very close to home. It was not only recognisable, but, you know, there were there were words, there were phrases, there were sayings, there were names, and, and you could see where they'd come from, and they'd all come from that culture. Yes. And so I felt that it was it was a culture that was bordering on, on the culture that I was living in. Um, and I was curious. It seemed like a, a, a thing that was was very familiar to be explored and the the others seemed much more remote i can see where you come from with that it's and the norse love a good fart joke they really do <laughs> they, they really do um, there's a lot of there's a lot of earthiness there's a lot of humor and there's a kind of sort of existentialist humor because it's all based on the idea that you know, we are all going to be wiped out at some point by Ragnarok, and so you might as well just enjoy it and and uh, seize the day. Um, and th there's that too. And I think, you know, also as as a writer, because even then I was I was wanting to tell stories because there is much less material with the Norse myths. There's much greater possibility for finding gaps to fill in yes. and imagining what happened between one story and the next, because obviously what we have is incomplete. Um, and so you, you, you kind of, you treat it a little bit like connecting stories that, you know, that, that, that need to be connected. Okay. And my final question comes from Hisham on, on Twitter. And he asks if you keep track of all the 10 tweets threads that you've done and how many <laughs> 10 tweets threads have there been so far? I have no idea how many there have been so far because, no, I don't keep track of them, although some people have done for me. Um, <laughs> this used to happen with story time. I used to just let the stories go off into Twitter and I wouldn't keep them. Mm -hmm. um, and some people then would keep them for me and would send them back to me and would go, oh, you did this story like six weeks ago and I really liked it, so I've kept it for you. And that was the point at which I realised that I needed to keep them and write a book. Um, I think at some point maybe I'll do the same with 10 tweets because... Uh, people do seem to like them and and you know it, it seems only fair I think to collect them at some point but no I don't I don't have a uh, an archive of them although I'm sure Twitter has one I'm, I'm um, sure and somebody usually, on Twitter I mean, has <laughs> done something it's it's easy you just look up hashtag 10 things about mm -hmm. and then whatever it is that you 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 think and usually the obvious ones have been done, things like agents and editors and copy editors and, and you know, publishing and this kind of thing. Um, there, there are some slightly more esoteric ones. Somebody at some point did do me a kind of up-to-date archive of them, but I don't know what I did with it. I don't repeat them. I just tend to sort of just answer whatever questions are asked. And, and yeah, because a lot of people want to know more or less the same things and because they're usually questions relating to writing, publishing, editing, this kind of thing. I think it's just easier to do it in one tweet thread than to answer the same questions day in, day out from different people. So you just go, OK, today's going to be this and everybody tunes in. And, and if it's useful to them, then good, all the better. It's just another way of sort of like getting things out onto Twitter. And I guess I think people always sort of discuss 
the thread as it's happening and there's always that kind of element that goes along with it so I always th- find it fascinating when I when I'm watching it sort of scroll past so it's <laughs> it's really really interesting I don't spend it's all my time engaging with the community I think <laughs> yeah the, the community likes to talk about certain things and, and I always think that you know I mean I'm, I'm not quite sure what my publisher thinks I'm doing on Twitter but I always think that it doesn't really work terribly well if all you do on social media is try and sell your books. I mean, why would anybody want to to listen to me go, hey, buy my book? So instead, I do things that maybe people would want to listen to if if they're interested in books, writing, literature, whatever, whatever it is that I'm interested in. Absolutely. And I think the people who are successful on, on Twitter as authors are the people who do engage and sort of talk to, you know, other twitter users and uh, i certainly find your presence on twitter to be one of those reassuring presences anyway (laughs) well that's nice to hear i do enjoy twitter i mean i i go on there because i like it um not not necessarily because i think it does anything for me as as a writer i don't think it sells books or anything what it does do from time to time it will it will tell me the answers to questions that i want to know there are many things that i've asked twitter as a hive mind and they've come back with the answers which I found very useful. And I also use it for stylistic purposes because I do think that the exercise of writing with a limited word count um, is really important and I think mm-hmm. it's benefited me a lot. And, and I also do it to keep in touch with people because, you know, having been a teacher for such a long time, I still kind of miss the the dynamic whereby you, you work for four hours and then you, you went into the staff room, read two pages of the paper, talked to somebody about something, made a cup of tea and then went off again. And so yeah. Twitter has become my staff room in that respect. And it's actually full of my ex-boys from Leeds Grammar School <laughs> who talk to me and, and also my my colleagues, you know, people you meet in the business that you like, but you don't get to see very often. You might get to see them once a year at Edinburgh or something, but you can talk to them every day. And because because authors tend to have this kind of slightly mixed life partly solitary and also partly so surrounded by people that you don't have the chance to talk to anybody at any length Mm -hmm. it is quite nice to to have that that possibility just to talk to people and also to to readers you know just to get in touch with people yeah I I do I do I know that Twitter has its ups and downs but I I still believe it, it, it is mostly a gift that allows people to make connections and I don't think I would have been brave enough to sort of send the email to you to say, would you like to be on my podcast had I not followed you on Twitter for several years? Well, <laughs> you know, there it's... you go. I mean, I'm I'm very much the same with people. I, I, I have ended up working with people that I met on Twitter that I would not have met or worked with otherwise. I mean, Howard Goodall is one of them. I ended up basically writing a sp- Greenplay for the Wombles movie for Mike Bat because of something he asked me to do on Twitter. Strange things that come to you out of this this medium. Wow. I think it, it can be extremely helpful in that way, as long as you're not expecting it to lead to, you know, a direct increase mm-hmm. in, in whatever it is that you're wanting to sell. So but no, I think it's a great way of connecting people. And, and as such, I think it's, it, is, it is a blessing in lots of ways. I mean, obviously, if it connects you with people who are a pain in the neck, then the block button is your friend absolutely and I I guess that's that's all I have time for all my questions answered today um you've been utterly utterly amazing thank you so much Joanne (laughs) well thank you for hosting me it's been lots of fun